Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. You know, anytime there is a change in leadership at the top of an organization, there is bound to be uncertainty, doubt, and we might even say fear. Uh, This is especially the case when the previous leader was well-liked and had served the organization for a long time. And these feelings of uncertainty and fear are true for both parties, both the new leader that's coming in and for those whom he or she is charged with leading. It happens when a church replaces a longtime pastor with a, a younger version who might want to change things and do some things differently. It happens in business when the manager or the CEO calls it quits and someone else, particularly from outside of the organization, is brought in to be the new leader and replace the previous one. The same holds true in politics at all levels, local, state, and national. And it is true also in sports. It's just, a, it's just a general principle that when you have a team or a group or an organization and the, the top leadership is replaced, there is going to be some uncertainty. We see the same thing in the Bible. For example, in the life of the Israelites, we saw that when a new Pharaoh came to power that did not know Joseph, he had no relationship with Joseph and his family, then things drastically changed for the Israelites. We are going to see in a future sermon in this series that Isaiah has his grand vision of God in the same year that King Uzziah died. And there's a reason for that because there's all kinds of uncertainty with a new king coming to the throne. Last week in our Ancient Encounter series, we looked at Moses and his encounter with God at the burning bush. Today, we fast forward 40 years past that time. God has delivered the people from Egyptian slavery, but they are not yet in the promised land. They've been wandering around in the desert wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy closes with the death of Moses the man who had led them during those 40 years in the wilderness. But God is not going to allow Moses to go into the promised land because of some lack of faith on Moses' part during those years. And so it is going to be a new leader who comes on the scene, a new leader who is going to be charged with leading the people into the promised land, conquering it and dividing that land. Fortunately, we already know who that leader is going to be. And they knew it as well. In fact, if you're doing your Bible reading plan with us, you saw that this past week in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, where Moses lays his hands on a younger man by the name of Joshua, whom Moses commissions to be the next leader of Israel. So there is not going to be any interim period. There's not going to be a a lack of leadership. And in fact, that's often the more difficult part of the transition when you have an interim period where no one is leading and therefore some people are vying for positions of power while others are trying to change things before a new leader comes on. 
I have a friend who always gives me a hard time because he doesn't understand why it takes a Baptist church over a year to find a new pastor. He says the Catholic church can get a new pope in a week and it takes a Baptist church a year or more to find a replacement. But our new leader, Joshua, has already been working with Moses. He's called Moses' assistant as we open the book that has his name on top of it. And so we're going to immediately go into the next phase of leadership. And that tasking, or what I'm calling the commission, is going to come not from Moses, but it's going to come from God. Moses had publicly commissioned Joshua. And now in this text, God is going to commission Joshua. The word commission can be used in many different ways. But I'm using it in the sense of a person who is officially charged with a particular function. Someone who is authorized by someone else to do something on their behalf. And so in this case, God is going to commission. God is going to authorize Joshua to do something on his behalf. And that something is taking the people into the promised land, conquering it, and dividing the land. And I hope you'll see by the time we're done this morning that God has commissioned you as well. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have been commissioned by God also. So let's look at the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. The Bible says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all of the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's commission in the life of Joshua. And we're going to learn some truths that apply to our own lives as well. Now, we probably know less about this man than the other three men that we've looked at so far in this series. What do we know about Joshua? Well, again, from our Sunday school days, we know that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls, they came a-tumbling down. You remember that song? I've had it in my head all week long because I've been studying this, and now I'm putting it in your head so you can do it as I've done all week. But that's really about the only thing we know about Joshua. 
There might be a few other tidbits. We know that he is the leader who takes the people into the land, conquers and divides it, but we don't really know any of the stories other than Jericho that goes along with that. You might remember that Joshua was one of the, one of the 12 spies that Moses sent into the land to look it over. Not to decide whether they were going into the land. That was not the purpose. The purpose of the spies was to find out the best way to go in the land. But 10 of the 12 spies came back and said, it's going to be too hard. It's too difficult. And we can't go in. It was only Joshua and Caleb of the 12 spies who said, yes, we can go in and we ought to go in. And that's the reason the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And coming out of that, the only two adults that lived to go into the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. Perhaps you remember him as the one who led the people. And we're going to see this morning that that is certainly true. We certainly don't want to forget that there have been a number of years now that Joshua has been the understudy of Moses. He has not just been randomly selected at this crucial time. He has been in training and preparing for the years, uh, for years for this very moment. So while I'm not going to deal with the training of Joshua, I do want you to understand that it was there. He's been Moses' assistant for decades now in the wilderness. Even as God had spent 40 years training Moses, God has spent many years training Joshua as well. Because he is now going to lead the people in. His whole life has been preparing him for this very moment. That was a sentence I read yesterday in a book I just started on Ulysses S. Grant. But it is equally true of Joshua. His whole life has been preparing him for this moment. And this moment is now here. The moment of preparation has materialized. Moses is dead and Joshua is the new leader of Israel. And so God begins his ministry with a personal encounter a personal encounter which will be essential for the challenges that lie ahead. Because it is not only difficult to, uh, to come behind a great leader, one that is well-liked and one who has done it for a number of years, but if you've got your Bibles open, and I certainly encourage you to keep them open, flip back to the last part of Deuteronomy, and you'll see just a little bit, a summary of the kind of man Joshua was following. Deuteronomy 20, 34, verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded him. And there was not a prophet, or there was not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all of the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all of his land, and for all of the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. How would you like to follow a man like that? Where the Bible says there's not been another one since then. It comes anywhere close to the deeds that Moses did for the Lord. That's whom Joshua is following. And so God is going to commission him. And in commissioning, commissioning him, he is going to give him some promises. And we have seen that when God gives promises, he is faithful to fulfill those promises. So I want you to see three promises that God gives to Joshua. Number one, he promises the, the promise of possession. 
That is, he is giving them the land. If you notice in verses 2 through 4, the word give or given is found multiple times. God says, this is the land that I am giving you. That's why we call it the promised land. Now, we will see later that they were going to have to take it. But ultimately, it was a gift from God to his people. Of course, we know that this is not the first time this promise has been given. It was given to Abraham many years ago, hundreds of years ago. It has been repeated numerous times since then. And every generation has heard about this promise being passed down from parent to child and on it goes. But now that moment is finally materializing where the promise is going to be fulfilled. And so they are given the promise of possession. Now I realize that casual readers of the Bible might have a concern here. That is, why is God giving the Israelites land that is already inhabited by other people? Why is he telling them to go into this land and take it by force and kill the people who are living there already? Well, you need to remember that God is not only only blessing the Israelites with this land, but at the same time, he is bringing judgment upon the nations who are living in this land. And he is using the Israelites to bring about that judgment. You see, the people in the land were worshiping false gods. And in fact, some of them were actually sacrificing their own children to these false gods. And so God is blessing the Israelites while bringing judgment upon these other nations. When there is a nation in our world today that has a bad reputation for human rights abuses, we cry out for justice. That is, we want other nations to step in and do something about the human rights abuses in these other nations. We start with with economic sanctions. We want the world to bring upon economic sanctions upon another country that uh, that is abusing their people so that maybe they will rethink the way they're treating people. And if that doesn't work, we're even willing to go to arms from time to time We are willing to send in forces to these other nations in order to bring about human rights justice by force. And we think that is wise. We even, we do that for non-Americans. That is, we're doing it for other people because sometimes we believe it reaches that state where injustice and oppression must be dealt with. And that is what God is doing in this story. He is bringing about the justice, and he is judging the people by using the Israelites. So he's given them the promise of possession. They are going to go in, and they are going to take the land that he's given them. Secondly, he gives them a promise of protection, verse 5. No man will be able to withstand Joshua because God is going to give him the power to do what God has called him to do. And in fact, this is a biblical principle for every believer, that when God calls you and I to a task, God equips and enables us and strengthens us to do the very task that he's called us to do. Now, Joshua's task is monumental. It is far beyond what any of us are going to be called to do. But God is more monumental still. God is greater than even this kind of monumental task. And so even as God gave power to Moses to go into Pharaoh and lead the people out, God has given Joshua the same power to lead the people in. Now, if I might return to our superhero introduction of last week, this does not mean that Joshua is suddenly Superman and nothing can come against him. 
Neither is this the Old Testament equivalent of the athlete's favorite verse in the New Testament. What's the athlete's favorite verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As if we can win every game because Christ is giving us strength. That we are somehow invincible. That is not the case in the New Testament and it is not the case in the Old Testament. Neither does it mean that Joshua will have a life of ease and free of pain. In fact, we are going to see shortly that he needed this encounter with God lest he fall into fear. So just because God had promised his protection doesn't mean that the journey is going to be easy. We are nearly finished on Wednesday nights. You can still join us, but we are nearly finished on Wednesday nights after three years in the book of Acts. We've only got two chapters to go. Now, the reason we've taken three years is because of COVID, of course. It's not because I'm going in depth. It's because we've had a lot of time off. But we are seeing in the, in the book of Acts, at the very end of that story, that Paul is in chains. Paul is in prison. Paul is on his way to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar. But the journey is not easy. God had given Paul a dream. And God had said to Paul, even as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you're going to do the same in Rome. In essence, telling Paul, nothing is going to stop you from getting to Rome because you're going there to be my witness. But the journey wasn't easy. Like I said, he spent years in chains getting there and nearly died multiple times in the actual journey. So this is the same thing we're saying about Joshua. He is given the promise of protection, but that does not mean that there will be no difficult days. I don't know where we come up with these Christian phrases, and I certainly don't know what non-Christians think about these phrases, but you've probably heard someone pray a prayer of protection. And they say, God, would you put a hedge of protection around this person? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever prayed that? We're, we're saying, you know, put something around them to protect them from any kind of of evil. And I don't think there's anything wrong with praying that. But we do need to be careful that we do not take promises that were given to an individual in Scripture and apply them generally to all of us. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But for now, let me help you understand that there is a third promise. Not only the promise of possession, not only the promise of protection, but thirdly, the promise of God's presence. Verse 5. What a wonderful and comforting verse, verse 5, must have been for Joshua. No matter how difficult the days ahead might be, no matter how frustrating the people might become, God assures him that he will be with him every step of the way. He is not going to be leading the people by himself. God will be there with him. Now, before we go on to our second point, and there is only two points to this sermon this morning, I want you to see that these three promises, possession, protection, and presence, are all three also true for every believer. There's going to be some slight differences, but all three are true of us as well. So let's go back over these three promises. First of all, the promise of possession is for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I do not mean to imply that whatever address you call home is your promised land given to you by God just as God gave the Israelites the promised land. Nor is this a promise that every Christian ought to be a landowner. Neither am I saying that you will one day dwell in the Middle East as a true child or son or daughter of Abraham. 
So how then does this promise of possession apply to Christians today? When, the, when they finally did conquer the land, we are told that the Lord gave them rest on every side. Their time of slavery in Egypt was over with. Their time of wandering in the desert was now over with. The time of conquering the people was now over with. And God gave them rest on every side. However, in Psalm 95, in the time of David, which is many years after this time, God talks about a rest. And Hebrews picks up on this and says, if Joshua led the people to God's rest, why does God still talk about a rest in the time of David? The writer of Hebrews says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Meaning that there is a greater rest than just that rest in the promised land, a spiritual rest. He goes on to talk about a Sabbath rest and the fact that we can rest from our works because God has done all that is necessary for our salvation. You talked last Sunday in Sunday school about the Sabbath. One of our chapters in last week's life group books was about the Sabbath. And I realize that there are differences of opinions on how practically the Sabbath applies to believers today. And we're not going to go into that. But we at least can know that we can rest from our works on the Lord's day because Christ has done all that is necessary for us. He has given us the gift of salvation by grace. So just as the promised land was a gift that God repeatedly says, I'm given to my people, so he has given us rest from our works because we do not, we do not receive salvation by our works, but by his grace, finding spiritual rest in Christ. Furthermore, we do have a home. We do have a land that is promised to us, a heavenly home. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept for us in heaven for you. And Jesus, of course, said, I'm going to prepare that place for you. And if I'm going to prepare it for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So we do have the promise of a possession, a rest in Christ, and a future home in heaven. Secondly, we too have the promise of protection. Again, not from all physical harm. I'm not here telling you that nothing can ever hurt you physically. We're all too painfully aware that that's not the case. But we are spiritually protected. Jesus said that no one or nothing can snatch you out of my Father's hands. That when I have you, when you and I become believers in Jesus Christ and are saved, that nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Paul said it so eloquently in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are spiritually protected. When we stand with God, nothing can stand against us. And then thirdly, the promise of his presence. Surely you are aware that Jesus repeated those words in the New Testament for us. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We too are never alone because God is always with us. And that's a promise that is being fulfilled today and will continue to be fulfilled every day of our lives. 
It is one of the things I almost always remind in prayer when I go visit in the hospitals. Because oftentimes the patient is alone and they're, they're worried, they're concerned about their health. And so in my prayer, I almost always say, Lord, I pray that you would help them to know of your presence. I don't pray for the presence. We don't have to pray for the presence of God because it's already among us. But I pray that the person would know of the presence of God, that they would know that they are not alone. So these promises that God gives are not only for Joshua, but in some sense, sometimes a little bit differently, but in some sense, they are also for us. Now, we like promises, especially when we know those promises are going to be fulfilled because God keeps his word. We like promises, especially when those promises are very beneficial to us personally. We take comfort and are encouraged through them. But that's only half the encounter. The promises that he gives are only part of what we see in this text. And so we need to turn our attention to the second part while keeping in mind the promises. So don't forget the promises because the promises are key to the obligations that we're now going to see. So he not only gives promises, but secondly, there are some obligations he requires. By that I mean that there are some clear commands here that God gives. Some instructions for what Joshua is to do. This is really a great example of how God's promises and our responsibility go together. Joshua is not being told to let go and let God. Joshua is not being told there's nothing you can do. No, there are some things that Joshua is going to have to do, but he's going to do them under the auspices of those promises that we've already talked about. God is going to accomplish his plans, but he's going to use means to do that. And in this case, the means is the leadership of Joshua. So what are the obligations? Number one, the obligation for Joshua is to be strong. Four times in this chapter, we read the words, be strong and courageous. Let's look at them. Verse six, verse six, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. So three of them are in the verses we read, but go down to the very last verse of this first chapter. Only be strong and courageous. Now, God doesn't have to repeat himself in order for us to obey. It's not a matter of if he says something three or four times, then we have to take notice and we must obey. But certainly when he does repeat himself, it is there for emphasis. We do that sometimes in our own conversations, don't we? <clears throat> we say something like, now let me be very clear here, so I'll say it again. Or we, we say, just so there's no confusion, I'm going to say this again. Or, I shouldn't have to tell you again, but I'm going to. Here it is. Well, that's what God is doing here. So there is no doubt when we walk away from this passage that one of the key elements is God is charging Joshua to be strong and courageous. He is going to need it in the face of the battles that lie ahead. Though again, God is doing the fighting for him, especially if you remember how Jericho, uh, how Jericho fell. You know that God was doing the fighting. But he still needed strength, and that strength is in God. It is not his own strength that is needed. These two things go together. Joshua is finding his strength in God, and through that, then God is going to strengthen him for what lies ahead. So I do not mean to imply that Joshua finds his strength by making sure he continues to work out regularly. 
This is not a, this is not a strength and training program for Joshua, nor are we to market one. You know, on the heels of the Daniel diet, now maybe we have the, the Joshua strength and training program. And I'm confident it would sell, but that's not what this is about. God is equipping him. God is giving him the strength. But at the same time, he's charging him to be strong in the face of conflict. The second obligation I would mention is that Joshua is to be uh, successful. Joshua is to be successful. We find this in verses 7 and 8. Say, well, now, now you've got my attention because I want to be successful. I mean, everybody wants to be successful, right? Most people don't start out to intentionally be a failure. And so we all want to be successful. People pay good money to go to conferences that tell them how to be successful. People put in a lot of time and energy in their careers to try and be successful. So we want to be successful. So tell me how to do it. Tell me what success is and then show me how to get it. Give me some steps that can get me to success. Well, am I now talking about financial success? Is this the health and wealth portion of this sermon where I'm about to tell you how to find financial freedom? Or is the success merely talking about how Joshua needs to be successful in conquering and dividing the land, which of course we know that he's actually going to achieve? Or, or is there a, a much greater area of success for the followers of Jesus Christ? I'll be honest, we struggle spiritually to come to terms with what real success is. We struggle with defining what spiritual success is. In fact, one of the questions we are asking the folks we are interviewing for our children's pastor job is how do you define success in ministry? Because that's a, that's a hard thing to, to put down in concrete terms. What does success look like? Well, Joshua's encounter with God goes a long way in answering that question. How does God define success here? It's defined as obedience. We find this word success twice. I believe it's in verses 7 and 8. But both times it's in the context of obedience. Joshua's success was not primarily about his military might or his organizational ability. I'm confident he was a great battlefield general, and that's why we're talking about him today in some sense, but it's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is verses 7 and 8 he was obedient. Do not turn from what is written. And when it, when it says what is written, it refers to the first five books of our Bible, the books that Moses wrote. That's what Joshua has available to him. And God says, do not turn to the right or to the left, but be obedient in all things. Do according to all that is written in them. And then he says, the result will be success. So success for the Christian is actually very simple. It is being obedient to God and faithfully following him. Our success in life is a direct result of our walk with God, our intimacy with Christ. It's not a matter of the title that you have on your door, or it is not a matter of the numbers that you have in your bank account. Success must be defined by God, and his definition is faithful obedience. Again, you and Joshua alike have been given these wonderful promises but that does not negate our responsibility to be obedient. And that's not legalism. That is simply rightly being a disciple who follows his or her master. The third obligation, be strong, be successful, and be 
studious. Now you think, he's just adding that one. He likes to talk about how we're supposed to read our Bibles, and so he encourages us to do that all the time. And he says that's how we're going to grow in our relationship with the Lord. And so now he's just putting that one in there. But if you followed along as we read, you know that I'm not importing that into the text. It is already there. But it's logical. Even if it weren't here, I could say it because it's logical. You can't be obedient to what you don't know, which I guess is why we say ignorance is bliss. We say, well, if I don't know something, I can't be held accountable for it. But that doesn't even work in our systems, does it? I mean, if I were to steal a car and got caught for it, and I were to say, I didn't know it was against the law to steal a car, I'm still going to be held accountable. My ignorance is not bliss. I'm still going to face the consequences for doing something, whether I knew it to be right or wrong or not. Likewise, in order to be obedient to God, we must know what God requires. And there is no excuse for ignorance because he has revealed himself to us through his word. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to be scholars, but we should all be students. To meditate upon the word, as God tells Joshua, is not to add in some sort of mysticism or Eastern religion. I'm not talking about incense and, and all of that stuff. It just means to mull it over. It means to take the word of God and think it through, not just read it, though it starts with that. And so as you read through your Bible, whether you're using our plan or somebody else's, whatever plan you're reading, as you read the Bible, you need to take what you read and mull it over throughout the day. Think it over. Ponder not only what it means, but how it applies to your daily situation. It doesn't mean you have to carry a Bible with you everywhere you go. However, it's easier than ever to do that, right? Most of us have it on our phones. But it means to carry the Bible in your mind with you and think through what you've read and apply what you've read and studied to your daily encounters. I have found that we tend to study what we are interested in. And we ought to be interested in the things of God. Now, if you're one who says, well, I just don't like to read. First of all, I would say, well, get over it and learn to read. Or secondly, I would say to you, that's okay. There's plenty of things you can listen to. If you don't like to read, then listen to the Bible. Listen to good podcasts. Listen to good books. With the technology we have today, there is simply no excuse for us not immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Again, obviously for Joshua, this meant that he needed to study the first five books written by Moses. But for us, it means the entire Bible, both Testaments. Again, you'll probably never become a scholar. You certainly won't become one by next week. But you ought to be reading and growing in your understanding and knowledge so that you can increase in your obedience. And as we've already seen, this is the pathway to success. Now, I have tried to show throughout how these promises and these obligations are not just an ancient encounter between God and Joshua. I've shown you that all three promises given to Joshua applied to our own lives, even if the application is a bit different and certainly more spiritual than physical. And hopefully you've seen that all three obligations are also meant for every true believer. These are not isolated commands given to Joshua. They are true of every believer. But now you might argue, they might be true of me if I've been commissioned. Your title was God's commission. 
but God has not commissioned me. And so maybe these promises and these obligations do not apply to me. So let me conclude by saying you indeed have been commissioned. Did you know that the name Joshua is the Hebrew, the Old Testament equivalent of the name Jesus in the Greek? It means the Lord is salvation. So there is no doubt that Joshua is a type or a picture of Christ. We talked about that with Moses last week, and it is equally true of Joshua, that he is a picture of the coming Messiah. So just as Joshua led the people into the rest of the promised land, so Jesus leads us into God's rest of salvation by grace. You may not know that in 2012, the Southern Baptist Convention at its annual meeting approved the use of an alternate name for our convention. It hasn't really taken, it hasn't really caught on very much, so you probably still know us as the Southern Baptist Convention, which is our still official name. But they agreed that churches could use an alternate name, and that alternate name was Great Commission Baptist. This, of course, is taken from Jesus' last words to his disciples, where he commissioned them to go and make disciples of all nations. And it is in that context that he gives that promise that I quoted earlier. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That commission was not just given to the initial disciples. Rather, it is a commission for all disciples. So you have been commissioned. If you are a believer and you've been saved, you have been commissioned not only to be a disciple yourself, but you have been commissioned to make disciples. The question is not, have you been commissioned? The question is simply, where and to whom are you to go? Because all of us have been commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. Let me pray. Father, thank you this morning, not only for the commission of Joshua, but thank you for our own commission. That in saving us and calling us, you have commissioned us to go. We are the means by which you intend to share the gospel with the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be strong and courageous in doing that. We probably won't face physical battles, but we face spiritual battles. We're, we're filled with doubts and fears when we try to share the gospel with someone because we, we don't know what to say or we don't know how to say it. Lord, give us strength to make disciples. Help us to be successful as we faithfully follow you in obedience. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the men and women you've called and commissioned us to be so that more and more people can hear of your saving grace and the promise of rest and a future home that's found in you. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.